Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Man, I think thinking about God's faithfulness is like the perfect way to set up what we want to talk about today. But let me go ahead and pray for us before we jump in. God, we just want to declare your faithfulness. God, even as we, as we hear this story today, God, would you, would you remind us of the ways that you've been faithful in our lives? Remind us of the ways that you've been faithful in our congregation, in this gathering that we're in together, God. There is a lot of proof of your faithfulness. Bring that to our awareness today, God. I also just want to pray for uh, the church of our city, the church of Evansville. God, I believe that you are writing a story that ends in your glory. So God, we just want to pray uh, for a revival. We want to pray that your spirit would come, that you would wake us up to what you're doing. So God, we long for you. We remember your faithfulness. And God, today we want to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are picking up in our series called People of a Faithful God. And you notice it's not called Faithful People of God, and that's simply because we just want to highlight the fact that these are everyday, normal people, just like you and me, who happen to serve a remarkably faithful God. And the story that we're going to be reading about today is in 1 Kings chapter 19, but before we get into the text, I just want to give you just a little background on where we are in the story. You see, 1 and 2 Kings are a story of the fall of a nation and the failure of the kingship. See, God God never intended for his people to have a human king. God was always intended to be king. It wasn't supposed to be a monarchy. It was supposed to be a theocracy, God in charge. But Israel made it very, very clear that they wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations around them. And so God gave them a king, not as his good design, but as a concession for his people. The first king was King Saul, and things did not go well for King Saul. But then he was followed by David. David is actually the great-grandson of Ruth, who we heard about last week from Andy. And things went better for David. Sure, he had his failure moments, but when he leaves the scene, you have this picture of hope for the nation. He passes on the kingship to his son, Solomon. And Solomon starts out great. He, he prays this humble prayer for wisdom that God answers But from there, he shifts his trust away from the Lord and ends up marrying all kinds of princesses from other nations as a way to try and consolidate power and and to gain political favor. This is a pretty normal practice in this day, but know that it was not God's idea. And ultimately, Solomon finds himself worshiping these other gods, just like God had warned him about. At the end of Solomon's time, it, it really spirals downhill. He, he's created an army. He's established this slave organization of, of slave work inside the nation of Israel. What you see is he starts with this humble prayer for wisdom and then spirals down until ultimately he becomes like, like a new Pharaoh. Then the nation is then split uh, to his two sons. Rehoboam takes uh, the leadership in the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom called Israel is, is led by a man named Jeroboam. He's, he's Saul's other son. And again, it doesn't go well. You, you fast forward, and throughout the book of First and Second Kings, 32 out of 40 of the kings fail miserably. And I'm not talking like little failures. I'm talking about like, like building idols and sacrificing their children to them kind of failure. It's not a pretty sight. You fast forward, and this is the picture that we see Elijah enter into. See, Elijah is is one of the nation's most prolific prophets, and he enters into the scene uh, with, with this kind of destructive attitude right in the middle of this long period of the kings. And 
when I say the word prophet, I don't want you to think like, like a spooky fortune teller. Sometimes we, we have these funny images pop into our minds, but, but the biblical idea of a prophet is somebody who has this really strong, compelling personality who hears from the Lord and then speaks it to those in power. That's what Elijah has done. And God appointed Elijah to bring his truth to the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel, and their king, Ahab. Now, like I said, there's been some pretty rotten kings up to this point, but the Bible is very specific that Ahab is the worst one yet. It says that he's done worse than all of the kings before him. Ahab is married to his queen, Jezebel. Jezebel is actually a Phoenician princess, which means that she worships the gods Baal and Asherah. So it's starting to sound a little familiar, isn't it? I mean, this is like a classic Solomon-type move because Ahab ends up adopting all of these idol worship practices. And then Jezebel takes it upon herself to stop, start killing off. She slaughters all of these prophets of Yahweh. And this is when Elijah enters in. Now, there's, there's been a few odd and end prophets that have tried to confront the kings of Israel, but Elijah, he takes it to a whole other level. See, he challenges the gods of Baal and, and Asherah to a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. So he invites the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah up to the top of the mountain for the showdown of the gods. And if you haven't read this uh, this week leading up to today, I encourage you to go back and read it. It's worth your time. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18. But the long story short is God rains down fire from heaven that consumes the offering miraculously. And then Elijah proceeds to slaughter all of the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And then we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if you would, or turn there in your Bible app, and just kind of keep it open. We're going to just walk through the text slowly today. And while you're doing that, you may have heard me talk about the idea of hyperlinks before. You're familiar with the word hyperlinks. If you've ever been on like a Wikipedia page, you know that you can be reading a sentence, and then there's a little word that's blue and underlined, and you can, you can click on that word and then follow that thread into the deep dive into that particular idea. The Bible is full of these types of hyperlinks, these, these little connectors that, that bring this little story into the story of, of God's story, like what God is telling throughout the whole of Scripture. And the Old Testament is full of these, but, but a lot of them go unnoticed by you or me because we don't have most of the Old Testament memorized like a lot of the ancient God-fearing Jews would have. But if we could read 1 Kings 19 through this Wikipedia hyperlink lens, it would be littered with blue links because so much of this story is so connected to the long story that God is telling throughout Scripture. And so we don't have time to get into all of these, uh, but we will highlight a few um, that are really important for our conversation today. Okay, so after Elijah's God, Yahweh, uh, has this amazing show of his power and greatness at the top of Mount Carmel, we pick up in verse 2. Jezebel, not happy. It says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I don't make your life like that of one of them. Them being the the prophets that Elijah has slaughtered, her prophets. So she takes the, the fight straight to Elijah. This threat on his life is making it real for him. So what does Elijah do? I mean, he's seen this amazing show of God's power and faithfulness on top of the mountain. Like you and me, like threat on our life. Yeah, we're probably going to turn tail and run, right? But, but Elijah's seen God do some amazing, amazing stuff. So what does he do? He runs. <laughs> he does exactly what you or I would do. He's completely forgotten the way that God's been faithful in his story. He runs. 
think there's an important lesson here for us, and that is that we are at our most vulnerable after a victory. We're at our most vulnerable after a victory. Like when you've seen a great show of God's faithfulness, it's so easy to look beyond it. Like the enemy loves to sneak in and say, but did God really say this? I think specifically of our youth, like the high schoolers, middle schoolers, and kids that that just came back from camp. Like you guys know what it's like to come back from camp with, with a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about what you've seen God do. It's easy to lose that, isn't it? Like that's when the enemy wants to come in, but but we have to hold on to what God has done. Like, write it down. This is the time to establish new rhythms. This is the, the time to, to surround yourself with Christian community. Don't lose record of how God has been faithful in your life. And Elijah doesn't do any of those things. He runs. He flees south, 100 miles south, actually, to Beersheba. And when he's there, he realizes, man, he is running from all that he's ever known. But this actually isn't his rock bottom. We keep reading in verse four. It says that he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. He prays for God to take his life. I think that, that this part of the story actually helps us start to understand a little bit more of what's going on in his heart and mind. I mean, he's, he's incredibly discouraged. Like, he's seen God do some amazing things, but, but I think things just did not turn out the way that he expected. He's so disappointed because I think what he was expecting was national revival. Like, it was tearing down all of the altars, coming back to the Lord and weeping and mourning, the whole nation turning back to God. But instead... What he got was a threat on his life from Jezebel, just like all the other prophets he's known. He was at the end of his rope. And with his last weary breath, he prays for God to take his life. I think we need to acknowledge in a room this size that some of you have been there. Some of you maybe not quite to that extent, but some of you certainly have. Did you know that the rates of depression and suicide in southern Indiana here are some of the worst in the nation? So if that's you this morning, you need to know that God sees you, that God hears you. And I think it's important to pay special attention to how God responds to Elijah in this moment. It says in verse 5, all at once an angel touched him. And said, remember, he's asleep under the broom tree. The angel wakes him up and says, get up and eat. So he rubs his eyes and he looks around and and there by his head was some baked bread. It was baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. So God sends his messenger to Elijah, not to chastise him, but, but to care for him. See, he wakes up to bread and water, to sustenance from the Lord. He wakes up to an angel of the Lord and not to a speech from God. He woke up to a meal. Get up and eat. So he eats it and and then he goes back to sleep. Like he's going to try and sleep it off just one more time. He's actually awakened a second time by the angel. He came back. It says in verse 7, he came back and touched him and he said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. If I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. 
journey. What journey? Like I'm, I'm running for my life. I have a threat on my life. I'm not on a journey. I'm fleeing. And this is as far as I go. This is at the end of the line, pal. But something switched in Elijah's mind. Like there's a shift that happens for him in this moment. I think, I think it's important for us to recognize that oftentimes when we think we're running from something, we actually find that we're on a journey towards something. Think about Joseph. Joseph uh, thought that he was fleeing from the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, but he found that he was actually on a journey to the second most influential seat in the nation of Egypt. Moses thought that he was running from the Pharaoh, but he found that he was actually on a journey to leading God's people out into the promised land. Jonah, he thought that he was fleeing from God's plan for his life, but he actually found that he was smack in the middle of it when he set foot in Nineveh. Oftentimes we think we're running from something. We find that we're actually, God has us on a journey towards something. So so Elijah gets sustenance from the Lord, but he also gets a purpose. All of a sudden, he realizes that he's not done. But he doesn't turn around and start heading back north to Mount Carmel, back to where Ahab and Jezebel are waiting. He keeps running south. And this is where things, I think, start to get really, really cool. Kind of nerdy, but cool. Stick with me. I Googled it. He kept running south to Mount Horeb. It's 250 miles south from Beersheba to Mount Horeb. So I did some math and realized that if you travel at a decent pace, it should take you about a week and a half, about 10 days to walk that distance. Do you know how long it took Elijah? Let's read verses eight and nine. So he got up and he ate and drank the second time. Strengthened by that food, he then traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. So so even though your Bible says that that he walked or traveled 40 days or 40 nights, the fact is he took his sweet time. I mean, it was more of like a mosey. (laughs) It was like the slow saunter down to Mount Horeb. So either he just really didn't have a whole lot of motivation or what I think is that he he was weary. Like this is... This is not something he was planning on, but but he received this sustenance from the Lord. He finds purpose and he keeps journeying south. Let's keep reading. In verses 9 and 10, it says, The word of the Lord came to him. God asks him this question, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I know what you're thinking. It's probably what I felt the first time reading this. I started to feel a little sorry for him, but I think we need to examine his answer here because the fact is this is kind of a sob story. Like he's feeling sorry for himself, but his answer is actually full of half-truths because the fact is, first of all, God didn't ask him to challenge those gods on top of Mount Carmel. That was Elijah's idea. Elijah also fails to acknowledge that even though it was his own idea, that God still showed up in a really big way. Like God was faithful to him in that moment. The last thing is he claims to be the last prophet in Israel, but we know that's not true. And Elijah knows that's not true because just one chapter ago, Elijah met Obadiah, who was also a prophet. And Obadiah tells him that he's been hiding hundreds of prophets in the caves up in the hills. So what we have here with Elijah's answer is not a glimpse into the reality of the situation, It's a glimpse into the reality of Elijah's heart. He was devalued, he felt defeated, and he felt alone. 
So again, I think with a group like this, like some of you have felt that. I feel like I've felt those things before. So again, let's, let's look at how God responds. Does he reprimand him for his display of, of weakness or fear, or lack of faith? No. He says in verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. It's like, it's like God takes Elijah and he draws him closer, like a good father would do for a distraught son. God draws him closer. And the next part is just, is really, really compelling. Like we gotta just read this chunk together. It says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not on the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. See, Elijah knows that that wind and earthquakes and fire, like when the Lord appears to his people, Elijah knows his Bible. He knows that he usually looks something like that. He's expecting God to be in all of these things. But this one was different. Like there was something specifically different about the way God appeared to Elijah, and it came in a gentle whisper. Does anybody have anything different than gentle whisper in your Bible? Say it out loud if you got it. Still? A still whisper? Say it one more time. A lull. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that one before. How many of you have heard like a still small voice? That's the old King James Version translates as a still small voice, which I think is beautiful and poetic. But actually what this is getting at, it's an old Hebrew idiom that is more literally translated, a sound of thin silence. Like, like you're given this picture of this torrent of chaos and destruction hitting the mountain, and then silence. We don't know exactly what Elijah heard in that moment, but it was enough to draw him out of the cave. He, he covers his face with his mantle and he walks out of the cave into the presence of the Lord. This is exactly what Elijah needed. See, God, God knew that Elijah needed to be in his presence and Elijah's seen God come in fire before. And what Elijah needed here though, wasn't God to come in the wind or, or the earth trembling or in fire. God knew what Elijah needed, his presence, but he also knew how he needed it. A gentle whisper, the sound of silence. You get a glimpse into the heart of God. I don't know what that experience was like for Elijah, but I can put money on the fact that I think we can guess what's going on. Oh, sorry, I'll take a drink here. I think we can guess what's going through Elijah's mind in this moment. And this is where I want to pause the story and get into some of these hyperlinks because I think it draws into clarity what is really happening in this moment. So if you are going to read the Old Testament from front to where we are now, this is actually not the first time that you would come across this mountain, Mount Horeb. Because actually Mount Horeb goes by another name. It's Mount Sinai. Raise your hand if you've heard of Mount Sinai. Yeah, some significant things have happened on this mountain. If you rewind the clock back a few hundred years, Moses has fleed from Egypt and he finds himself caring for sheep right around this mountain and he's wandering and then he sees a bush on fire on Mount Sinai and he encounters the Lord in the burning bush. He goes back into Egypt and he rescues God's people out of Egypt 
And all of God's people are now camped around this mountain, Mount Sinai, while Moses goes up and comes face to face with the Lord. And we're going to read it in just a second. You're going to notice it starts to sound very, very familiar. Let's check it out. In Exodus chapter 19, it says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Does any of that sound familiar? Like there's hyperlinks all over this story, like I was saying before. Let's look real quick and see if we can see any parallels happening. Go ahead and put that map up. I want to just kind of map Moses' journey here. So Moses encounters God on the Mount Sinai there at the bottom. Then he proceeds with God's people to wander in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. They lived off of bread and water. They woke up literally to bread laying on the ground. They miraculously came across water coming out of a rock. God, God provided for his people in the wilderness. And then they found themselves in the promised land. All right, let's go to the next slide. You see up at the top at Mount Carmel, this is where Elijah was in the promised land and he fled south to Beersheba. Then he wandered into the wilderness and was fed with bread and water by the Lord. Like woke up literally to bread on the ground. He then proceeds to wander in the wilderness for how many days? 40 days. And then finds himself smack dab at this moment on Mount Sinai. This is a really, really important concept because, because I think what happened was Elijah, he prayed this desperate prayer for God to take his life. He said, I'm no better than any of my ancestors. And so what did God do? He turned Elijah's escape plan into a journey back in time, recounting God's faithfulness. You saw Elijah, he's walking Israel's story backwards. He goes back to the place where his ancestor Moses encountered the Lord, was given this covenant agreement together with God. It's like God was saying, no, you aren't any better than your ancestors. You're just like them. And maybe that's the point. See, Elijah, he encounters this same God on the same mountain and reminded him of something very important. Something else really important happened when Elijah uh, was on this mountain. I'm sorry. Something important happened uh, when Moses was on this mountain. Centuries before Elijah, Moses has been in the presence of God, and he wants so badly to stay in God's presence, he prays, God, don't send me away from here unless your presence goes with me. He asks God, show me your glory. So God says, okay. He hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, right, a cave on Mount Horeb. Ding. Catch that hyperlink? He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass by you, and I'm going to declare my name. That's, that's an ancient Jewish way of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to show you my character. I'm going to show you who I really am. And so he does it. In Exodus 34, we read what God speaks to Moses as he's, as he's sharing who he is. He says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord. Right? The Hebrew here, it says Yahweh. Like he's, he's saying his name, Yahweh, Yahweh the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This word love is chesed. You got to reach back and get the phlegm going, chesed. And it's not a Hollywood type of love. 
No, it's a covenant love. It's a loyal love. It's love that comes with a promise. And I think this, I think this moment is what, exactly what was going through Elijah's mind as he's standing at this point. He's remembering what God has done with Moses. He knows his Bible. This verse that we just read together, I've heard it described as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Like it's littered throughout the Bible. Elijah knows that God proclaimed his character to Moses like this. And I think it's exactly what Elijah needed to be reminded of. He needed to be reminded of the kind of God he serves. He's full of compassion. He's full of faithfulness. He keeps his covenant promise to his people. This is what Elijah needed to hear. So I think God uses this situation to remind him, to remind Elijah of his faithfulness. But then he goes on to prove it to him because he gives Elijah two things. He gives him first a successor. He says, you're going to go back the way you came and you're going to find Elisha. He's a younger man and he's going he's to be the prophet in your place. He's going to come and he's going to take the mantle for you. He gives him a successor, but then he also gives him a promise. This promise is that he's going to give 7,000 people in Israel. He's going to find 7,000 faithful, those who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. They haven't kissed the idol of Baal. He's giving him this hope of a renewed promise. He's telling Elijah, you're not alone. I'm still working. They're still faithful. We know that the 7,000 represents those who would go off into exile and come back in their faithfulness. They would come back and they would, they would help rebuild the people of God. We heard about this a few weeks ago when we read about Nehemiah. God is showing Elijah that he's not done with his people. And I believe that he's still not done. So I was praying through this passage for for our congregation together, I felt like God had a message for Crossroads. And that is that, that if we would be faithful to seek the presence of the Lord together, that he has this same promise for Elijah for us. And that is that God is not done yet. Like God is not done with Crossroads. God is still working. He is still moving. He is still faithful here in and among us. And I think you need to hear God's not done with you yet either. If God has been faithful in the past, I believe that he can do it again. If we are faithful to pursue his presence, God has a word of hope that fills me with hope. The fact is that we pursue the same presence of the same God in everything that we do. Like my, my team, when they play in these services, we do so with this one goal in mind. Like we asked ourselves a long time ago, if we live and love like Jesus, like if that's what we exist to do, how can we help shape this 60 minutes together? How can we shape our idea of worship together? And it was chasing after one goal, and that is to cultivate a longing for the presence of God. Like if we can somehow stir in our hearts this desire for God's presence, not only will that help us to live and love like him, but I think this proves that God will speak a word of hope to his people. Like if we will return back to the well, come back to the source. So we shape this hour together toward that. Not because this is the only place where that can happen. Quite the opposite, actually. It's so that we enter out into our week pursuing the presence of God in every single moment. Like in that meeting that you have coming this week. 
or when you feel drawn back to that same old pattern of sin, or you feel tempted by that old addiction, when you feel depression starting to creep back in, seek the face of the Lord. There's renewed hope in God's presence. So we, we craft this hour together so that it, it shapes and changes the other 167 hours of the week. So that's how we want to finish our time today. Like we actually still have a decent amount of our time together left and we're gonna focus our energy now for these remaining minutes pursuing the presence of God. And I wanna just kick that off with this practice that Christians have been using to seek God's presence for 2,000 years and that is the Lord's Supper. You can go ahead and get your, your cup out that has the bread and the juice. And this is how God's people have been encountering his presence for centuries. You see, God has always used bread as an illustration for his provision for his people. God gave his, the Israelites manna, bread, in the wilderness. Elijah, just a, a few chapters before the story that we're reading today, he was fed bread by ravens in the wilderness. Elisha, his successor, he multiplied bread for an army. Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 with bread in the wilderness. Jesus even called himself the bread of life. You know, Jesus actually, he also went up on a mountain. The Bible says that he was transfigured on top of this mountain. It says that, that his face shone like the sun. He was showing his disciples a picture of what the fullness of his kingdom looks like. And in this moment, they saw two people appear talking with him. I'll give you two guesses on who he saw. Moses and Elijah. It's an important moment. But Jesus was different. Jesus didn't run from the threat of death, but willingly stepped into it. Jesus, the bread of life, gave himself to be our sustenance, to be our provision, to be our hope of a new life. See, Jesus gave his life so that he could give you life. He gave his followers bread and wine to remember that sacrifice. And this is what we get to be a part of every week. See, when we eat and drink, we take up our part in the story. We remember his sacrifice. That is our provision. That is our sustenance. That is the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of life forever. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna have some moments of quiet where you can eat and drink together. And then we're gonna spend the rest of our time together pursuing God's presence. So pray with me. God, we just come to you praying, come Holy Spirit. Like we want, we want to come into a face-to-face -face encounter with you. So God, we remember your sacrifice. We remember your faithfulness. We wanna declare that we've seen you be faithful and we're gonna let that be fuel for our faith for the future. God, you have been faithful to your people. You've been faithful in this body, this family together. So God, we believe you can do it again. We put our trust in you. We put our hope in you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.